What a great blessing to worship together and just hear some good news that the city start opening up. So I look forward to the day that we can gather back together, that we'll be singing not just uh, five, six of us here, but that all of you will be able to join in unison in singing. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. We'll continue, as I mentioned earlier, we'll continue through the six, uh, the seven churches in Revelation, Christ's letter to each, each of these church. We are almost to the end of this journey. We're on our sixth church today to the church in Philadelphia. So I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, please open up to Revelation chapter three, verse seven. Or if you have your, on your app, on your, on your computer, uh, opening up the browser, uh, to go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible in chapter three, Verse 7 to 13. Hear what it says. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patience, endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trials that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have. So that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem. Which comes down from my God out of the heaven. And my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, God, would you speak to us? God, we ask that you, through your Spirit, you'll prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our soul to receive this gift of your word. God, I pray that you'll revive us if there's any coldness in our hearts, if there's resistance to you, if there's any disappointment toward you, God, warm, heat up our hearts so that we can receive the very word that you have given to us today. God, be with me as I speak. Speak through my vocal cord. Think through my mind. Help us to collect the thoughts and the truth that you have given to us in our hearts. Lord, may what we say, what I say and what we hear today be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. May the words of our, my mouth and, and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. My God, my rock and my redeemer. Get glory. Get glory both in the physical place that we are, we're, we're, we're being at. But get glory in our lives today. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Hopefully you've been following with us. Uh, again, we've been on our six out of seven churches now. Today we're going to continue to take a look at the letters that Christ has written to these churches. As you remember, the mailbox that we have, we've covered the first few. And today we're going to read a, a different mail uh, to the Church of Philadelphia. To the Church of Philadelphia. And uh, one of the challenges we have in the, from the very beginning of this series is this, seri- uh, this challenge called First 15. I hope you've been keeping on with that. You've been blessed by that. By offering your first 15 minutes of the day to Jesus. Whether through praying, whether through reading the word of God, whether be meditating and listening to God. I hope that's been a blessing. I encourage you that let's not stop right here. Let's continue that challenge and let Christ be the first thing. Let's offer our first fruit to God and let Christ be the first in our, our first thought that we have in our mind, his truth be the first uh, uh, statement, the first um, thinking in our lives. Believe it or not, when I was high school, when I was in high school, I was actually a pretty decent runner. I know I don't look like it now. Uh, I look nothing like a runner. I've gained a few pounds since then. And uh, COVID definitely added an extra 15 on that. But when I was in high school, I was a pretty decent runner. And one of the events that I ran in um, by accident, actually, was that I was really good at was the 400 meter. Uh, if you don't know, basically, it's just one one time around the track, 400 meter um, a race. I was first thrown into that race. Originally, I was running a 100 meter and 200 meter. But one day, one of the uh, one of the, my friends uh, at at school could not make it for whatever reason. So the coach said, oh, Ben, why don't you just go in and just run a 400 for him? And so I did. And to my surprise, I did exceptionally well, even as a freshman in high school. So ever since then, my coach said, why don't you just change your event to run a 400? And on the one hand, I knew that I was pretty good at it. But on the other hand, I hated running the 400. For one, 400 is more than 200, is more than 100. So I have to run more. So I don't want to run more if I can run less, even though I'm good at it. But on the on the second reason, the second reason why I did not like the 400 was simply because if anyone have ever run a 400 meter race, you will know that you will always come to the last turn of the lab and the last 100 meter, you will hit what is proverbially called the wall. And it would not matter how great of a runner you, runner you might have been, how strong you might be, you would hit that wall. And you will run into that wall and you will struggle to the last 100 meter. And you're wondering, how come I'm going slower and you're kicking as fast as you can, running as fast as you can, yet you feel like you're not making any head wave. Because the reason why it's called a wall is because you literally are running, feeling like you're running into a brick wall. You're running into the wall and you're wondering, how can I continue if you're so far away? And that's one of the reasons why I hated running 400 meter. But as I continue to grow as a runner, my coach start coaching me and, say, and start teaching me the way to break the wall, obviously, is not to give up. But the way to break that wall is actually looking further down, that 100 meter and further down the line, the finish line, and believing that finish line is actually not that far away and that you continue to give everything you got and keep moving that feet one step at a time, pumping the arm one at a time and eventually you will finish. And even though you're not making a lot, of, you don't feel like you're making a lot of head wave, like you were in the first 100, 200, and 300 meters, keep at it and believe that the finish line is right there. 
You know, when I think about that, what a valuable lesson for us. Because I believe for many of us, at times we hit the wall in our lives. Man, we're doing well, but eventually we hit that wall wondering, I have no strength of my own. What should I do? How can I find strength when I'm weak? And in fact, that is the problem here. That is the issue here in the church of Philadelphia. That they hit a wall. They feel they, they were run, running up against things that are much stronger, tougher than them. And Jesus gave them this letter to encourage them how they can find strength when they feel weak. How they can have more strength when they feel little strength, little power. Where does that strength come from? So today we're going to take a look. How can we find strength in moments of weakness? When we feel the weakest, when we're at the lowest of valley, how can we persist on? And the letter to the church of Philadelphia Jesus gives us the truth. As you hopefully are familiar now, every letter began with an identification of Jesus to the church. And here what it says in verse 7, Jesus, through the apostle John, dictating the letter to him, and he wrote it down for the church of Philadelphia to read, says this, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here Jesus opened up the letter telling them three character of Jesus. That will make a whole lot more sense later on as we've seen letter after letter. That each one of these characters actually matters to personalize to the church that he was written, uh, writing it to. And here's just quickly go through here. Jesus said he is the holy one. He is the holy God. He is just that he will execute perfect justice. He's pure. He will not tolerate sin of any kind, of any degree. But not only is he holy, he is true. He is true in a sense that he is real. He's not just some fabrication, some, some hopeful daydreaming type of God that wished that this God would exist. No, he said, I am the true one, the real one. He's the real deal. He's not some counterfeit God that people made a statue of. But most importantly, he said, he's the one who holds the key of David. This is a reference back in Isaiah, a a prophecy made toward Jesus being the Messiah, that he would hold the key. And and we also know in Revelation chapter 118, that if you look at that, it tells us that he holds the key of death and Hades. What that means is that Jesus has the authority, has the key to lock up Satan and those who are in hell. But not only is he has a key to close and all oh, shut, shut, the, shut hell from people going in and coming out. He also holds the key, as we know from Matthew. He told Peter that you have the key to the kingdom of God. He holds the key, his authority to close an open door for people to enter into the kingdom of God or to shut them out. Jesus alone holds that key and nobody else gets that. Which is also interesting when he charged Peter and subsequently to the church and uh, the, the universal church, capital C church, that we have been given that key to open up ways for people to enter in the kingdom of God. So keep these things in mind as we go through this letter. That he is the true one, he is the holy one, and he has the key to keep those whom he brought into the kingdom of God. And no one can take him out, take those people out. 
Just a little background for Philadelphia. Very easy background because Philadelphia actually was not a big town like Ephesus, like some of the towns we've looked at. You look at the map, you remember one of the reasons why these seven cities were chosen was because they are part of this route for mail, for trading. These are key cities. So Philadelphia is not quite the, the small city, but they're not the biggest of city either. And so ancient Philadelphia is now today actually no longer exists. It is the modern day Turkish city, Alexia. It was 80 miles from Smyrna. Not a big town, not a, not a prop popular town. You're not going there for vacation. Primarily because this town, this city was built, was built upon a volcano. There's earthquake happening there all the time. And those of you who have been in our church long enough, you know a little bit of my background prior to becoming a pastor. That was actually my uh, academic study in earthquake. And, and during my undergraduate year, one of the things, neat things I get to do is actually go visit Mount Etna, which is an active volcano in uh, Sicily, in Italy. So you see pictures there. I was actually there. So every two years, the volcano will erupt and it cools off. And as you can imagine, living in a volcanic active area, is quite ins- unstable. As you can see, lava just literally stopped through the, 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 the road, uh, hotel and motel get crushed. By the way, this is not a, this is not Philadelphia, okay? This is actually in Mount Anna in Sicily. But I just want to show you a picture of a young me and my previous work. But as you can tell, it's a very unstable place to live in. And you gotta ask yourself, like, why would people keep going and live in those cities? One of the unique thing about living in volcanic, uh, volcan- volcanic active cities is, is that the lava actually creates a very fertile soil for plants. And so one of the reasons why people will keep returning, even though they know the risk of living in an earthquake-invested and volcanic-filled place, is that they work with very, very fertile soil. And for Philadelphia, ancient Philadelphia, it was a a prime piece of property to grow grapes, to make wine. And so therefore, people keep going back to that city. And, and, and in fact, one of the uh, really powerful earthquakes came through that city in 1817 and literally caused all sorts of damages. The whole city needed to be rebuilt. So the people in Philadelphia knows what does it mean to live in instability. That you never know if something's going to happen to your house, to your family. But beyond that, we see in the passage here, as we have heard from many churches, the instability does not only come from geographic, uh, 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 from geography, but also from on a spiritual front that Christians at the time are confronted with instability through persecution. Just like every other church in Turkey and Asia Minor back then, they are faced with imperial cult. Meaning that people are forced, are commanded, are demanded to worship the Caesar at the time to call them Caesar as Lord. And if you are a Christian, you persist not to bow your knees and give your money to burn incense towards Caesar. You are living in against the law. And one of the interesting here, thing here we see from the book, uh, from chapter three here about Philadelphia is something that is something that we've heard before. That they are not only facing uh, 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 imperial worship uh, that they go against, but they are also going against Jews. If you remember, back in Smyrna, we talked about how the Jews have persecuted Christians in Smyrna. Here in verse 9 says this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. 
Similarly, in the city of Smyrna, in Philadelphia, Jews were the only group that are exempt from worshiping Caesar. Because see, now the Roman uh, Empire government wanted to have a good relationship with the Jews, a long-standing relationship with them. And so they excused them. And so what happened was the Jews at the time, feeling like they are the people of God, and all of a sudden this, this little group of people called Christians started propagating everywhere. And they decided that to cut, cut their... And if you remember, Christians were worshiping with in temples with Jews at the time. But slowly they start segregating each other uh, from, from one another. And the Jews decided that we're going to no longer associate with the Christians. And when that happens, the Christians are no longer under the umbrella of Jews that they can worship whoever they want. And the Jews, in fact, Jesus said they are acting. They think that they are the people of God, but really they're not. They were basically throwing Christians into the lion's den and let them be persecuted by the Roman government. And that's why Jesus has such strong word and said, they are worshiping in the synagogue of Satan. That is not to curse Judaism per se, but the, some of the people in there are exacting almost demonic, satanic persecution upon Christians. And Jesus said, I know what's going on. And I know, Church of Philadelphia, that is what you're going through. But hear what Jesus said. And notice what, how what Jesus commended them for. In verse 8, familiar word again that we've heard again and again. Jesus said to the church, says, I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Every letter, most, actually not every letter, five out of seven, comes with a, a commendation from Jesus. And Jesus commended the church of Philadelphia and said, you did a great job. You have little power. And even with little power, you hold firm to my name and did not deny me. Jesus was affirming, encouraging, and, and uh, giving them applause for doing a good job. Even though they have so little power, Against the government, against the Jews, against the persecution, they held strong to Jesus. They held strong to the name of Jesus. It's really interesting. I think we're far in love along in this series to know with one letter left in Laodicea. That out of the seven churches, Two churches on the surface, that seems to be impressive that we saw last week from Pastor Terrence about Sardis and we'll see next week at Laodicea. The two most impressive church, uh, churches on the outside actually received no positive commendation from Jesus. Yet the two weakest, apparently the weakest, the most helpless, the most harassed churches, Smyrna and here in Philadelphia, are the two churches that did not receive any negative rebukes think about that for a second the strongest church at least on the outside seem to have the most weaknesses but the two church that seem to be the weakest have no strength in fact jesus pointed out they have little power they seem to be the one that have the most strength to the world the church of philadelphia had no strength had no power They are powerless. And I think for many of us, at times we feel the same exact way, don't we? We often focus on what little we do not have. 
or what little we have. We have too little of experience at work. We have too little knowledge. We have too little smart. We have too little money. We have too little amount of followers on Instagram. We have too little, uh, too little clothes. We have too little car. Too little of a house. We have too many little things. We don't have enough things. And as if that the little things means we, we're weak. But the more we get, that will make us strong. But here Jesus kind of throw it the other way and actually commend the church of Philadelphia that they have little power. We often fall in trap in thinking, well, if I have more, I can give more to Jesus. But since I have so little, what can I offer to God? And as we look at the Bible, we see the teaching of weakness and strength. On one hand, is very obvious, but on the other hand, it can get a little confusing, isn't it? On the one hand, we, we look at the Bible, look at weakness and strength. It seems very obvious because it seems like the Bible prefers us to be weak. We'll look at verses like 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul spoke himself a very powerful, strong, strong man. He says this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest on me. We go to uh, the Beatitude, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We go to Isaiah 40. Go to any psalm you find. He says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases, increases strength. And so on, on a very obvious way, we see, we see the scripture tells us it is actually desirable to be weak. We should prefer weakness in all time, but as we look through the Bible again, it gets very confusing because it doesn't seem like all weaknesses are good. Like weaknesses of every kind is not celebrated in all of scripture because it is not always true that being ugly is better than to be beautiful. Being poor actually is always better than being rich. Being unintelligent is always better than, than being intelligent. Being feeble and weak physically doesn't always mean that it's better than being strong. Having fewer gifts, does that really mean that it's always better than having more gifts? We know in scripture that is not true because when we look at the heroes of our faith, we find people who are powerful, who are strong. I think of Esther. A woman, it says, was beautiful in form. Abraham. He was a rich man with servants, with all the properties and resources that he had. Samson, the strong man. Solomon, the wise man. King David, who is good an instrument and he become a king. Joseph, the second command in the, in, in the country of Egypt. Paul seemed to be a pretty educated person. When he, when he preached the gospel, he has a way of getting in in the philosophical way and also have a very, uh, can give testimony. So we don't want to say that we were a better Christian if we are just uglier, dumber, unless successful. If that's the case, then I'll be the perfect Christian. We know that is not true from scripture. So what is the Bible saying about weak? What is about weakness that, what kind of weakness is Jesus referring to that the Bible is saying that we should prefer? I want to suggest to us the weakness that the Bible prefers for us. The Bible calls us to be weakened. It's not a physical weakness as by strength, by ability, by resource, by what we own. But it is a weakness of our spirit. 
that when the Bible says he, that, that we should be weak, it is not, it does not depend on what we own, how much we own, how much we can think, how smart we are, but it is a spiritual weakness, meaning that we are humble. That it is a humility in our mind, brokenness of our heart, and a poverty of spirit. That when the Bible says we ought to be weak, it is a spiritual weakness of humbling ourselves before God. That we're not holding on to what resources that we may have. It is actually more about Jesus than about ourselves. It is less of us, less focus on what I can do, but more focus on what God can do. That is the type of spiritual weakness that the scripture call us to have. To be complete, completely dependent on Christ and Christ alone. And the more humble we are, the more we rely on Jesus. And which is why I think Jesus in his encounter with a rich young ruler said that actually it might be harder for people who are rich, who have a lot, no matter a lot of whatever it is, that it's harder for them sometimes to be spiritually weak. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. It says, and Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty would a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. To be spiritually weak does not mean we need to be weak and poor. Does not mean we need to be rich and powerful. You can have a lot or a little. It does not matter. Jesus calls us. To be spiritually weak and humble, meekness, and full surrender to him. I think the best place we can look at to find, strike the balance of being, the teaching of being obvious of weak and, and also confusing is when we go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. Hebrews 11 the most famous chapters about the men and women of faith, the heroes and heroines of faith in, 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 in the Bible. Hebrews eleven thirty two and 34 says this, what more shall I say? After a, a long list of names and stories that, that the, uh, the author of Hebrews gave us, he arrived at verse 32 and continued to list out more without going in detail. But I want you to notice what it says. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, all these men of faith and women of faith, who through faith conquer kingdoms, enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions. They do amazing, crazy, powerful things. They even quench the power of fire, escape the edge of sword. And I want you to notice what it says. They were made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. They did all those things not because of the power that they have themselves, but in fact, Jesus through the word of his word says this, they were made strong out of their meekness, out of the weakness. And so the way to strength does not go through how much we own, how much we have and of our own, but it is through faith. The central theme of the, the, the Hebrews chapter 11 and here, it identifies for us the way to be strong is to have faith. And that is countercultural to what, what, what we believe in this world, right? 
You see, strength does not come from like Oprah theology. Just dig down deep in yourself. Find that strength that you have deep inside of you and get it out and start exercising that. No, there is no strength in you and I. I was just talking to somebody this week. The fact that we sleep should tell us everything we need to know about strength. Sleep reminds us that there are limitations in our lives. You see, true strength does not come from deep inside of us. True strength comes from faith in Christ alone and his words alone. True faith comes when we hold on to Jesus, when we hold on to his word. We don't find strength in ourselves. The strength that the church of Philadelphia exhibit is not the strength of their own. Jesus clearly said they have little power. They have no power according to the world. And yet in the eyes of Jesus, they were strong. Look at verse 8 again. Look at the commendation Jesus had for them. I know you have but little power, which is true. And here's the great news. But yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. They kept trusting. They kept believing. They kept holding on. That's the phrase we keep seeing again and again in every, uh, almost every church that we've looked through. True strength comes when we hold tight to Jesus, believe in Jesus, holding on to Jesus and his word and his promises. That's what it means to have strength. And we can do that. The amazing thing is, we don't even need to have our own strength to do that. We can hold on to Jesus when we feel weak. I want to share a story with us. Some of you might know this gentleman. His name is Scott Hamilton. He was a very well-known Hall of Fame uh, figure skater. Um, he won, At one point, he has won 16 national champion championship. As a figure skater, he's only five foot four, not a not a very imposing man per se. But God has gifted him with his skills to to do figure skating in a beautiful way. And at the peak of his career, 1997, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer. When all was going well, and in the eyes of man, he was the, the most powerful, the most popular. And at that point. He was diagnosed with cancer. And yet through that, God miraculously brought salvation into his life. He got married to his wife. He experienced all these amazing things through the power of God. And I wish that would be the end of the story, but that actually was not the end of the story. That was just the beginning of a long journey as we will hear from him in this short testimony. I thought I paid my health dues when I had cancer, but this was a whole other issue. Uh, I have a brain tumor. How do I tell my wife? And we have a 14-month-old son. How do I how do I tell my wife that I have a brain tumor? I'd just gotten the news an hour before. I met them at the hotel, and I she goes, "What's going on?" And I said. I have a brain tumor. And she took my hands and without hesitation, she just started to pray. And it was in that moment I knew where I was going to put everything. 
my trust, my faith, everything. So the most powerful moment of my life. From that moment forward, we just said, whatever it is, whatever it takes, we'll face this. When they're going to do a biopsy, they tell you, we're going to drill a hole in your head, and then we're going to take um, a needle down through your brain and take a piece of the tumor. <laughs> they said, we seem to have found a safe corridor <laughs> to do this. And I go, well, I'm not using most of it. But um, they tell you all the things that can go wrong in that surgery. And I remember waking up, and I looked at the clock, and it was 10.20. I knew where I was. And then the next thing I saw was my wife come in with a smile on her face. She said, they know what it is. And they found out that that brain tumor was one that I was born with, one that I'd had since birth, which inhibited my growth as a young child. That was the mysterious illness I had that they never diagnosed that got me into skating. Who would I be? without a brain tumor. I'm five foot four. If I were five eight, if I would have grown those years, five ten, where would I be? Who would I be? I could choose to look at it as debilitating, could choose to focus on the suffering. I choose to look at that brain tumor as the greatest gift I could have gotten because it made everything else possible. I didn't see past it this time. I didn't think I would survive. One point I was starting to really feel weak. And one nurse in particular, I was up at three o'clock in the morning and I just was uncomfortable. And she was, can I get you anything? And I, I just said, no. I go, I'm just a little scared. And she said, do you pray? I said, yes. And she said, what do you say when you pray? I go, well, I just, I just thank God for all the blessings in my life. Do you ask him for anything? No, I just, I just want him to know I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Well, who is God to you? And I said, well, I, I guess he's, he's my father. Oh, you're a father, right? Yes. If one of your children were hurting, wouldn't you want him to come to you for comfort, strength? Yes. So I changed the way I pray now. Uninhibitedly, I ask. I ask to heal. I ask for strength. I ask for courage. I ask for another child. I'm talking about miracles. It's after surviving the pituitary brain tumor. It's impossible, practically impossible. I did six injections a week for two years. No luck. We're not meant to have another child. We gave that to God. A month later, we found out that Max was on his way. Miracle Max. 
When I look back and I see all those little moments in my life where I needed a great deal of strength, I understand that through a strong relationship with Jesus, you can endure anything. I just learned that the only true disability in life is a bad attitude. God is there to guide you through the tough spots. God was there every single time. <laughs> every single time. My name is Scott Hamilton, and I am second. What a beautiful story, but not without pain, without moments of weakness. As, I, as we continue to look at the Church of Philadelphia, we see how having faith has nothing to do with of our own. But to have, have having strength has nothing to do with our own, but really having faith in the one who actually has the strength. You know, when we think of having faith in Christ, we make it very fluffy and we feel, oh, it's a very passive thing. But I want to encourage you in it from this letter. Having faith is nothing but passive, but it's an active following and trusting in Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't call us to just daydream and, and, and have these hopeful wishes that things will work out. He calls that faith in something concrete, meaning his own son, Jesus Christ, and his promises. Think about the people. Abraham left his home with everything and his family, not because he doesn't know where to go, but because he trusts that Jesus, God had given him a promise to the promised land. Moses led people out of Egypt, though they might, may not know exactly where to go, but there was a promise of deliverance. David endured the worst of persecution and pursuit of, by Saul. Why? Because God promised him in due time he will be the king of God's kingdom. Jesus won on the cross. To die on the cross for us. Why? Because there's a promise from God that through his death and resurrection, there will be new life given to people like you and I. And beyond it, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he will be exalted to the highest place. But that path goes through the cross before he gets the crown. So we find strength, just like the church in Philadelphia here, by having faith in Jesus and Jesus alone and in his promise. Is no coincidence when you look at this letter. So little was talked about the church of Philadelphia. Over 75% of this letter was nothing about Philadelphia because Jesus know and the church of Philadelphia knows that they had little strength. But what they needed to know is not that they had little strength. What they needed to know is what God has in store for them. That Jesus promises for them is real. That's why majority of this letter has to do with what Jesus promised to do to them and for them. Jesus keeps saying, I have done this for you. I will do this for you. That's why what what fueled them to live up to this point is not just empty faith, but faith are the real promises of God. And so in order to sustain them further, Jesus through this letter, give them fuel all the more by giving them five promises. Let me be honest with you. I think as I was thinking about going through these five promises, I was thinking, how can I jazz it up to make it sound better? 
How can I make it sound interesting to you? But as I was praying about that, God convicted me. There's nothing you need to jazz up about these promises. Because if these promises are real, they ought to be fueled for us as we encounter difficulties in this life. And so I'm not going to jazz it up. I'm just going to read them to you. And I really believe as I pray for this message that some of us really needed to hear some of these promises from God. That perhaps you have forgotten them. Perhaps you've been doubting about them. And I believe that Jesus wants you to hear them today to kind of give you the, the, a little more nudge, get a little more strength to move on, move forward in whatever that you're dealing with. Jesus told the church of Philadelphia this, the first promise that he gave them was this, that there will be assurance of salvation. Salvation. Verse 8 says this, I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. If you go back to verse 7, this image of a key that only Jesus can open. The church of Philadelphia are being excluded. being They get the door shut on them. They're not part of the society. They're not part of even some of their own family because of their faith in Jesus. And they must be wondering, do I have a place in anything? But here Jesus said, I am a strong savior. I alone hold the key of king, the kingdom of God. And if you have put your faith in me, you are in it. No doubts that you have, no sins that you committed that I have not already died for can keep you out of, can snatch you out of my father's hand. You are in and you're in. It doesn't matter whether you feel it or not. Jesus said, I hold that key. If you're in, I will open the door. You're in already, you're in. I will shut out those who don't believe in me and they will be shut out. And for some of us, that's what we need to hear today, isn't it? That you might be struggling and wavering and drifting in your own faith. You're wondering, am I really God? Am I not God? If you have put your faith in Christ, be assured that Christ has saved you. But not only assurance of salvation, Jesus continued to remind them that, that Jesus, there would be perfect justice. In verse 9, second promise is that they will receive perfect justice. There will be a day of justice. Verse 9, behold, I will make those of a synagogue of Satan who say them say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. But behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I loved you. What an appropriate timing this week talking about justice, isn't it? The church in Philadelphia, along with many injustice going on in this world. If we continue to live in this world, we know injustice exists. It will continue to exist. But Jesus encouraged them. Though now they are being literally at the bottom of people's shoes and, and foot. And they're being crushed. Jesus said, I will exact perfect justice one day. That though who are high and mighty now that are taking, that being unjust, unjust to you. One day I will, you will flip, he will flip that upside down. You will be the one whom they will bow down to. And greater yet. Perhaps you feel like Jesus is not loving you because you're being persecuted. You're going through tough situation, circumstances that are difficult, the wall that you're hitting in your life. Jesus said, one day you will for sure know that I love you. Everyone will hear about that I love you. I have loved you. I've always loved you. So don't let the temporary justice or injustice in this world discourage you. Jesus said there will be a perfect justice, which leads to the third promise that, we, that he had given us, that he will protect us 
during the worst of suffering this world will ever see. In verse 10, here's what it says. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Some people look at this and say, well, that, does that mean that Jesus is going to spare them from suffering? And we know that's not true. They are suffering right now as Jesus are, are writing this letter to them. There are suffering, there's martyrdom going on. But what Jesus is referring to, this hour of trial is consistent with Revelation chapter 19, the great tribulation that will be promised, that God has promised to happen in this world. That whatever tribulation difficulties we're facing today will be pale in comparison to the great tribulation. The language here says it will be for the whole world. And it will try those who dwell on the earth. And if you go read through Revelation, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, are not just talking about any human being. But it's talking about rebellious humanity. That those who have not put faith in Christ, that they will be judged, that they will experience the worst of tribulation. And though what we are feeling right now is real and painful and sorrowful, Jesus said, look forward to the day I will spare you of the greatest, the, the greatest of tribulation. You will not go through that while all these people now, as they seemingly to be spared of suffering, will go through if they don't put their faith in Christ. So we see that with assurance of salvation, the promise of perfect justice, the promise of protection, here's the fourth one, that we will receive a crown. We will receive a crown. Here's Jesus reminding them, I am coming soon. You are at the last 100 meter. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Many scholars have different ideas what the crown is, but uh, we don't know for sure. But one thing we know what crown represents is simply this. That we will be in authority, we'll be in royalty. Do you remember that we are called as Christians to be heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ? If we stand firm, hold fast, Jesus said, that crown will be yours. That you might feel like that little small thing right now in this way, and people make you make sure you feel that small. One day you will have a crown. When it's all said and done in the last day, in the finish line. Your identity will be cemented not because of what you have done for yourself, but what Christ has done for you and prepared for you to put on that crown. And so if you ever struggle with self-esteem, if you ever struggle how little I have, if you're counting day after day, I have little this, I have little that, I have little that, I have nothing, be of good courage and be reminded by Jesus here, there is a crown waiting for you as you will reign with Christ forever. And then here's the last promise. Promise of eternal security. And here's what Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I wonder what the people of God at, at Philadelphia, when they hear this. Man, how personal this is to, to them. It is not a surprise or coincidence that if you go through places that experience earthquake a lot, especially ancient ruins, the only standing, last standing thing in those areas are pillars. Pillars. And the same is true if you go to Philadelphia, the picture here, you know, the pillars that are left over. Why? Because pillars are the stronghold of those buildings. The pillars are the only stable ground, stable structure of a building. And so when it shake, when it, when the ground is shaking, the only thing standing left over are the pillars. And Jesus said, 
when it's all said and done, no matter how big that earthquake is in your life, no matter how big, uh, how, how the earth is being sh- shaken up in your life, when it is all said and done, those who conquer because of Christ, they will be the pillars, the, the last man standing, not in just any building, but in the temple of God, which represent the presence of God. That is what awaits for us when we return home to Jesus. When he comes back the second time, we'll be with him in heaven. We will be those pillars that are standing, withstanding the shaking and the earthquakes of our lives that will continue to stand in the presence of God. We will have eternal security. Gone are the times that we'll cry. Gone are the times of pain. Gone are the times of sorrows. And Jesus said this. Notice this word, my. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Jesus said, I will never show he, the person who have faith in me will go out of it. Jesus said, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of the heaven and my own new name. You don't belong to anything else. You don't belong to your circumstances. You don't belong to your difficulty. You belong to God. He said, I will write on you the name of my God. You belong to God. I will write on you the name of the city, which means that heaven is your home. You will write, he will write on you the name of his own name, meaning Jesus is your Lord. You have the one who had conquered death and raised from the dead. He is your loving Lord and Savior. So how do we find strength in times of weakness? Not in ourselves. This letter reminds us, teaches us, exhorts us. The only way we can find strength is put our faith in Jesus and in his word. There are promises filled in this whole book. We need to read it. We need to memorize it. We need to hold tight to this into our heart, into our soul. When times go are tough, we need to remember that we are at the last 100 meter. We just need to keep trusting that Jesus at the end waiting for us to return. Do you know that every one of these promises are the fruit, are the product of what Christ has done on the cross? I think sometimes people, uh, some, some, some of us may struggle. Why would we do, do communion every week? Uh, every, every month or some churches every week. I believe this is one of the reasons why. Because if you're any way like me, we tend to be very forgetful. And when things are hard, our eyes quickly glance at the difficult things, not on the promises uh, of God, not on Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus commands us as often as we can to partake communion so that we will look at the cross again and be reminded that as surely as these bread and, and, and cup reminds us of the death and resurrection of Christ, surely these promises are going to come to fruition. That we are not living in this world. Uh, 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 this is not the end of our destination. This is not the end of our lives. That we will inherit the great identity that Christ has sacrificed for us, that he made a way for us to be the kingdom of God, that he has prepared us a place in heaven, that even in the meantime, he's sustaining us, giving us fuel and motivation to live for him, to shine for him. That's what communion reminds us of every single time. 
that Jesus' death was real, his resurrection was real, and all that the gospel promised for those of us who have put our faith in Christ are real. He is the true God, and he's the one ultimately gives us the identity that will withstand all types of shaking in our lives in this world. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. Today we're going to partake communion, and so I want to encourage you to take, uh, go prepare a communion, the bread and the juice, or the element that you have received. But before we partake it together, we're going to sing a song, the power of the cross. And I want to encourage you, as you hear the word of God today, as you hear him speaking to you, as he gave you these promises, as the spirit of God to stir those up, hide those into your heart. We're reminded the reality of what Christ has accomplished already for us. So let's sing the song, Power of the Cross. To see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. This the of the cross Christ became sin for us took the blame bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the Sit on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blessing brow. This This the power 
stand forgiven at the cross so let's uh partake the communion together and uh, let's take the bread and then we open up the juice and partake it with a heart full of thanks and a heart full of worship Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, the power of the cross. In the eyes of humanity, the cross is the worst death that anyone can get. It is a a sign of weakness, a sign of sin, a sign of wrong. But what power you have in using the lowliest of things and you turn it upside down to bring the greatest strength there is. To turn death to life. So Lord, thank you for doing that. Not because we're worth it. Not because we have earned it. But you've done it because you love us. So Lord, I just pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we're partaking this. Lord, remind us. That our lives no longer belong to us, but belong to you. And it will be, it is the best thing that can have happen to us. That now we get to live a life holy unto you. Be used as a display of your glory. That we can bring love and good, truly good, biblical good things into this world to point people into your kingdom of God. So be with us this week, God, as we as you send us out, as we live our lives for you. So may the, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. And he will surely do it. And it's the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you again for worshiping with us. I look forward to worshiping you again next week, and God bless.